If you have a Bible, meet me in Job chapter 4, if you would. This is week 5 of our study through the book of Job called If God is Good. And what we're doing is we're answering a number of questions through this series, uh, among others, uh, questions like, if there is a good God, why is there so much suffering in the world? And what am I supposed to do when I go through uh, difficulty or a tragedy in my life? Can I trust God? Why can I trust God? What is God like? And so these are just a few of the questions we're considering uh, in this uh, series. And this morning, things are going to take kind of a sharp turn in the story. Have you ever gotten really bad advice from someone? Someone came along and to bless you with their help, uh, but you discovered it wasn't very helpful at all. Maybe someone gave you advice on how to resolve a particular situation or or handle a certain conflict, and you heeded their advice only to watch things blow up in your face. Or maybe someone had for you a hot investment tip, and so you, uh, you agreed with that, and you invested your money where they said, and you saw that it ended up costing you hundreds or maybe even thousands of dollars. Maybe someone had a, a special remedy, a home remedy for you that was going to solve your physical ailment or the problem that you were going through, and that remedy just made things way worse. Uh, early in my ministry, I used to travel a lot internationally. I was kind of a missions pastor, among other things, and so I would take long trips internationally. And, and what I noticed is whenever I would come home, uh, my ears would be kind of plugged up, you know, because of the difference in cabin pressure and so on in the plane. And so someone said to me, what you have to do is you have to hold your nose pinch your nose, and then blow out as hard as you can. And so I thought, okay, well, I've tried that, and that was just horrible, horrible advice. I would end up going seven or eight days without being able to hear at all. And yet I kept trying to do that because this is what this person said to me. And then I said that to someone else, and they said, oh, that's the worst thing you can do. What you really need to do is just, you know, pound the fluids and exercise and whatever. And, and yet I had that bad advice, which, which cost me almost every time I traveled internationally. Now, it's one thing if bad advice leads to clogged up ears, right? That's manageable. Uh, but what if bad counsel leads to an emotional or spiritual or relational crisis? What if the bad advice we get actually ends up bringing great devastation on us or our relationships? This is the kind of advice uh, we're going to look at this morning. Um, if you're new with us, we're going through the book of Job, this Old Testament book. Job was was a man who lived uh, some 3,700 years ago, roughly. We don't know exactly. We're not told. We do know that it was after Noah, and we do know that it was before Moses, and so sometime uh, in, that, in that range. The prophet Ezekiel will refer to Job, but that's around 600 uh, B.C. Some actually will argue that Noah's life and Job's life kind of overlapped by a little bit. I think it's plausible. We don't know uh, for sure, but either way, at least 3,000 years ago, there's this man named Job who lived in uh, the ancient Near East. He was a very wealthy man. Uh, he was a very prominent man. He was a very well-respected man. In fact, the, the early chapters of Job tell us that he was the greatest man in the East, which is basically a way of saying he was the greatest man in the developed world. He was one of the greatest men alive at that time. And for some reason, known only, at least fully to God, God allowed Satan to take from Job everything that Job had. All of his possessions, all of his wealth, 
even his own children, and shortly thereafter, even Job's health. Uh, Janine and I were talking about this series this week, and she said something that was so helpful, and it really stunned me that I hadn't even thought about this before, at least to that degree. Uh, we, we talk about all that Job lost, which is in some ways impossible for us to really get our minds around. I mean, all that he lost, I mean, everything he had, his livelihood, his reputation, his own children. And Janine pointed out to me the other day that, you know, while we were talking about this sermon series, she said, you know, Job's wife also lost everything. She also lost her children. And so Job has lost everything, and on top of that, he has a devastated and and grieving wife that he has to lovingly shepherd, and he sits in this emotional and spiritual and physical anguish, literally scraping his own oozing wounds with pottery, and his three friends show up, and they don't even recognize him at first. This This is how bad he looked. They don't recognize him at first, and for seven days, they just sit with him in silence, and no one says a word. No one speaks. And then Job breaks the silence by speaking, and he rues the day he was born. He wishes he was never conceived. He cries out to God in agony. He wants to die. And then after all that, after a week of silence followed by Job's prayer of lament, Job's friends decide to speak, beginning with Eliphaz the Temanite, who responds to Job's lament. But as I mentioned, it wasn't helpful at all. It was not comforting at all. To the contrary, Eliphaz caused more harm than healing. And so this morning we're going to see three three things. What Eliphaz got wrong, what Eliphaz got right, and where Eliphaz was accidentally profound. So what he got wrong, what he got right, and where he was accidentally profound. And we'll continue to establish as we do this a framework for interpreting not only our own suffering, but really for grasping more about the wisdom of God. So we're going to cover verses, or chapters 4 and 5. I'm not going to read every verse of, of each chapter, but let's start by reading uh, verses 1 through 5. I'll read uh, from uh, chapter 4. Here reads the word of the Lord. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you've instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you've made firm the feeble knees, but now it's come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God, your confidence, and the, and the integrity of your ways, your hope? So Eliphaz starts, I guess you would say, with a word of encouragement. He says, look, you're known to be a very wise person. You're known to be a very great counselor. You have helped those in their darkest hour. You've poured out your wisdom on those who are suffering and weak, but now that you're suffering, you're impatient. You've forgotten your own words, he says. And then things go from bad to worse, verses 6 through 11. Is not your fear of God, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways, your hope? Remember Remember who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of His anger they are consumed. The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes 
for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. So just think about this situation. Think about the advice, but think about the situation uh, in which it's offered. Job has lost everything that matters to him. Uh, as I mentioned, of course, his, all his possessions and belongings and really his very livelihood, but even worse than that, of course, his own children. And he's sitting there. He has no answers. I mean, how could he? He has no answers as to why he's gone through what he's gone through. But his friend Eliphaz comes around, and Eliphaz actually has the answer. He says, I know what's wrong. You've sinned against God, and now you're getting what you deserve. You're not so righteous after all, he says. Old Testament scholar Tremper Longman says Eliphaz is goading Job on, thinking that really he neither fears God nor is innocent. His point is that if Job were really a God-fearing man and an innocent one, then he would not be in this predicament in the first place. So Eliphaz says, look, you've got, to, you've got this, these sins that you're not willing to confess. You've got these sins that God's punishing you for. Just put on some humility and confess your sin to God. Because this is what's happening. You've sinned against God, and now God has inflicted you with suffering. You weren't so stubborn, Eliphaz says, then maybe God would improve your situation. Eliphaz's mistake, and it's a devastating one, is that he moralizes suffering. Now, we moralize suffering when we conclude that if someone is suffering, going through a hard time, prolonged illness, had a tragedy in his or her life, it's necessarily because of some sin uh, for which God is punishing them. Suffering is viewed as God kind of evening the score. When we sin, He inflicts us. So if I'm going to avoid suffering, according to this philosophy, and receive my blessing, I have to clean up my life. And we moralize suffering all the time, I think, if we see someone around us and and we just look and things just seem to be going so badly for that person. Uh, maybe it's a lost job, or maybe because of lost income they lost their home, or maybe they have an illness they just can't seem to get over, and it just drags on and on, or maybe they're, they're, uh, they encounter uh, some sort of tragedy or multiple uh, accidents in a short period of time. What's our first thought? Well, sometimes we can't escape, but thinking, well, God must be dealing with that person. I mean, God is, is doing something. I'm sure that person has some sin that he's not confessed of that God is punishing. And we do the same thing on the flip side. If someone is really doing well, everything is great, it's been prolonged health and maybe a, a series of job promotions and a financial windfall, we think, well, that's what happens when you live right. That's clean living. But is that really how God works? Does suffering equal God's punishment? sounds more like karma than biblical theology. Now, there's another, there's another word for this, another phrase. It's retribution theology. It's the same thing, really, the belief that obedience to God's commands guarantees a certain response, a certain blessing from God. If a person obeys God's word and does his will, then he or she can necessarily expect God's blessing, health, wealth, uh, a long life you know, promotions, and so on. Of course, we see this in, in much of the, sadly, much of the preaching and teaching that goes on all around the world, particularly in the area we call the global south, uh, where people are being uh, hounded with this prosperity gospel all the time. 
Now that retribution theology also says if a person disobeys God, then they can necessarily expect God to take from them what they love. This is where Eliphaz goes with Job. This is, this is Eliphaz's reasoning with Job, but this creates all kinds of chaos. It's really bad counsel. Here's our first point. When we assume that our suffering is the result of personal sin, it leads to a simplistic and twisted view of God, which negatively impacts us in myriad ways. So we think, you know, we're suffering, and it must necessarily be because we've got some sin in our life, or even worse, we look at someone else, and we say the reason they're going through what they're going through is because of some sin in their life. It is a wrong view of God, which has negative uh, consequences. And not only that, but actually it angers God. Thinking that way angers God, because it's based on a faulty view of the character and nature of God. And God would actually call, and we'll see this much later, but I'll give you a hint of it in a moment, God will call that assumption folly. So they're not just uninformed, they're not just misguided, that is, Job's friends, they actually are foolishness. And the word folly, the Hebrew word for folly in the Old Testament, tends to have an edge to it, actually. It's a, it's a stubbornness that rejects God and His self-revelation and even God's instructions. And so the fool then, the one who's filled with folly, is culpable for the failure to fear God and and honor God. Later in Job, we we get to hear God's assessment of Job's friend's theology. uh, Job says in 42.7, or 42.7 reads this way, After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right. By assuming that our suffering, uh, our, our suffering is a result of personal sin, it leads to, again, a false and simplistic and twisted view of God. So what do we do with this? Well, first of all, don't make assumptions in your own life when things are going badly. You know, you can't get over an illness or you lose money or you lose your job or your kids aren't obeying you or whatever. Don't make assumptions that God is out to get you or that your suffering is God trying to even the score with you. Suffering comes as a result of living on a sin-cursed world. We live in a sin-cursed world, which means we will suffer. We absolutely will suffer. To live on this broken planet means to suffer. And we don't do ourselves any favor, or God for that matter, by concluding that our suffering is God punishing us for some sin we've committed in the past. If you're a Christian, not only is God not out to get you, but He promises that He's working all things together for your good and His glory, and your suffering will result in glory. So we don't make assumptions about our own suffering. And secondly, I don't know if I I initially wanted to say more importantly, maybe it's not more important, but secondly, we definitely don't make assumptions about other people's suffering. Or even worse, suggest to them that what they're going through is because they've got some secret sin that God is holding against them. If we're going to embrace bad theology, the least we can do is keep it to ourselves. This is not helpful. And you wouldn't believe, maybe actually some of you probably would, frankly, the heartbreaking and infuriating stories that I've heard over the years of people who have been hurt so badly by this retribution theology. People who've 
had heart disease and been told by someone else that it's because they've got some unconfessed sin that they don't know about. People who've been diagnosed with cancer, who have been asked by their, quote, friends, do you think this is because of something you've done? People who've seen their marriage crumble and had maybe well-meaning people come along and say, well, there's got to be something in your past that you've not dealt with. Or people who've had children born with special needs who've been told because it's, it's because of some sin in their past that God is punishing them. That's horrible, unbiblical, and unloving advice. And it angers God. It's not just not helpful, but it misrepresents God. Now, at the risk of undoing any good work that I hope I've done this morning, I, I, don't, I don't want to suggest to you that what we, do, what we do doesn't matter to God. I don't want to suggest to you um, that you know, God doesn't respond to what we do or what we do He doesn't care about. Uh, it is true that God delights in and actually rewards our obedience in Christ. Westminster Confession says it so beautifully. Notwithstanding the persons of believers, so that is their very persons, our very persons uh, are accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in Him, not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable or unprovable in God's sight, but that He, looking upon them in His Son, which is an important uh, qualifier, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. So we don't want to deny, and this is the way it is anytime when you, you, know, you react to something that's so bad and heinous as retribution theology, there's a tendency to over it. We don't want to deny that, that God is pleased by and even rewards our obedience uh, in Christ. Nor do we want to deny the fact that God also disciplines His children in love. It's true that if we continue in willful and unrepentant sin, those who are in Christ, God will discipline us in love as a way to bring us back to Himself. This is all throughout the Scriptures. But that does not mean that we should ever conclude that the bad that is happening to somebody else is because of their sin. Or that if we're suffering, it must necessarily be because we've got some unaddressed sin. That's where Eliphaz goes, and that, again, it angered God, and it was wrong. But he doesn't get everything wrong. Look at verses 12 through 21. This is Eliphaz continuing. Now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it. Amid thoughts from visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face, and the hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence, and then I heard a voice. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants he puts no trust. And his angels he charges with air. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth. Between morning and evening they are beaten to pieces. They perish forever without anyone regarding it. 
Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? Do they not die, and that without wisdom? So, I mentioned in kind of in week one, there's a lot of poetic and, and very poignant language here. Eliphaz tells Job of this vision that he had, this terrifying uh, nightmare. A spirit glided past my face, he says in verse 15, and this spirit had a mysterious shape. It had an undiscernible form. Um, it was so unnerving that it made the hairs on the back of Eliphaz's neck stand up, and then out of the silent, Eliphaz says, I heard something. They know where it's coming from, but I heard something. Now, before we look at what the Spirit said, we don't want to be too quick to dismiss uh, what Eliphaz experienced or label him you know, a mystic or a lunatic or, or whatever. God can work in any way that He pleases, and especially you know, in undeveloped areas of the world. Uh, there was a young man who came to faith in Christ through a ministry that I led some 20 years ago. I was the chaplain for the Valparaiso University men's basketball team. And uh, this guy, his, his name was Callum. He actually went on, he went on to play professional and basketball. But I did a chapel before each home game, and I did a Bible study uh, during the week. And it was optional, so guys didn't have to, to come, of course. Um, but by God's grace, you know, we had a good turnout and very good discussions. And one day, this guy, Callum, again, big, tall, 7-1, you know, big, tall dude, uh, he said that he started coming to Bible study because he told me he had seen in his room there in rural New, New Zealand, so he's from New Zealand, a spirit that passed by him caused his whole room to get dark. And he said he was terrified by it, didn't know what to make of it. And so he would come to these Bible studies, he would stay late, he would just ask me question after question about God, about uh, spirituality, about, uh, you know, Satan and angels and demons. And I shared the gospel with him multiple times. He put his faith in Christ, repented of his sin, put his faith in Christ, had the privilege of baptizing, which you can imagine, baptizing. I, I had to get a running start to get this guy out of the water. He was so tall. I thought I was going to baptize him and actually leave him there, not just spiritually dead, but figured it literally dead because I couldn't get him back up. But he came back up. He was so thrilled uh, to walk with Christ and um, but the way that what sparked him to ask questions was what he called a very real spiritual encounter. And so we don't want to be too quick to label Eliphaz, you know, uh, a crazy person. That, that spirit that terrified Eliphaz reminded him that God is so holy that even angels God charges with error. And if God is so holy that immortal heavenly beings are wicked compared to God, how much more so finite human beings who, verse 19, dwell in houses of clay. We have this, you know, this body that's perishing. And verse 20, they perish without anyone knowing. Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about having a low anthropology and a high theology proper. And what I said is if we're going to thrive spiritually, we have to get low. We have to get low with the way that we view mankind and humanity and get higher with how we view God well, the spirit who confronts Eliphaz insists on both a low anthropology and a high theology proper, a high view of God, and Eliphaz embraces that perspective and learns from it. So here's what Eliphaz got right, our second point. In light of God's holiness and infinite perfection, even the most upright person is wicked and deserving of judgment. There's a tendency we have in Christian circles, and I know it's there in my own heart, and that is to, to compare downward. And so we judge our own morality, kind of how we're doing in this whole Christianity thing, 
um, by looking to folks around us and comparing ourselves to them, and especially those that we know are uh, more sinful, those who are struggling with sin. And we say things, maybe not out loud, but we say things in our mind, well, at least I don't deal with that. At least I don't struggle with that, or at least I'm not like that. But the reality is God doesn't compare us to others as it relates to our standing with Him. Romans 3 tells us, all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God, not have sin, all have sinned and fall short of their neighbor's obedience. God compares us, we're compared to His own holiness, which leaves us broken, sinful, and undone. So what Eliphaz says is right. It's why he says what he says that's wrong. He's right in that God is holy and no one is righteous in God's sight. But Eliphaz is wrong in trying to get Job to confess of that secret sin that Eliphaz believes Job's committed that would then relieve all of Job's suffering. Job doesn't have any idea what it could be. He doesn't know what what sin he could have possibly committed and not confessed that would lead to this predicament. Job fully accepts that God is holy and that he himself is a sinner. But he won't accept his friend's retribution theology, namely that he's being punished by God for some sin that he doesn't know anything about, nor that that's how God really works. So what Eliphaz says is right, why he says it is wrong. You know, we think about sin, you know, if we don't compare downward, which is, again, a tendency in my own heart, we tend to think of sin only in terms of what we do. And even more than that, in terms of whom it hurts. So we tend to believe that what makes a sin really bad is, is, you know, how badly it hurts the people around us. So a single man sitting in his room alone looking at pornography may think, well, I'm not in a relationship, and so I I don't really know how is this hurting anyone. Or a a woman may think late at night while her kids are asleep, does it really matter if I have a whole bottle of wine? Everyone else is in bed. Is me getting a little drunk really going to hurt anyone? Or a man might think, even though I'm filled with hatred for this person who's part, also part of my same church, that person doesn't know about it, so how am I hurting anyone? But the truth is, every sin we commit is first a sin against a holy God, and that's actually what makes our sin so egregious. I'm reading through the Bible this year through our Seeing Jesus Together journal. I know some of you are as well, using that reading plan. And and I love it. I I love the way that it's laid out. I love the way that it's organized. And um, If you're not reading through the Bible this this year, grab one of the reading plans at our welcome desk and get started today. Um, It's never too late to get started. But in this plan, if you're reading this plan, you know about a week and a half ago, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 11, which is the story of David and Bathsheba. And, of course, I, I, I shouldn't say, of course, I mean, I've read this story, I don't know, a hundred times, probably more than that, I don't know. But, I, but this year, and this is what God does when we read through the Scriptures, I, I saw something that I hadn't really seen before. Um, of course, David, he's looking across, you know, from the, the, king's, the roof of the king's palace, he sees Bathsheba. She's more beautiful than all the other women, and he has her brought to him. And uh, she's married to a man named Uriah. But that doesn't stop David. He brings Bathsheba over, and they're together intimately. And then Bathsheba gets pregnant, and David says, okay, I don't, what do I do here? And so he, puts to, he orchestrates this plan to send Uriah out to the front of the battle lines 
where Uriah would be killed. You've seen all that before and, and, and realized that. What I didn't realize until this time is that Uriah wasn't the only one killed because of David's scheming. David actually employed an unwise and foolish battle technique that would send a battalion of men too close to the enemy's wall, and many men were killed. So David sent against Bathsheba, Uriah, all of those men, and all of the families of those men. Now, now here's where I'm going with this. And yet in Psalm 51, in reflecting on this, David says, against you, God, and you alone have I sinned. Now, that's outrageous, isn't it, on one level? Because there were probably dozens of people that David sinned against. But David realized that every sin is first a sin against God. Jerry Bridget, Bridges says it beautifully. Sin is wrong not because of what it does to me or my spouse or child or neighbor, but because of it is an act of rebellion against the infinitely holy and majestic God. What this means is every sin is actually a big deal. Even the smallest ones, even the so-called respectable sins, all the sins. God hates sin. It is a direct affront to His character. God knows that unconfessed sin will destroy us. God knows that hidden sins, the one we fail to acknowledge before the Lord, will enslave us and ruin us. It's sin that separates us from God. So what hope do we have in light of that point number two that in light of God's holiness and infinite perfection, even the most upright person is wicked and deserving of judgment. How can we be forgiven? How can we be right with that, God? Well, I mentioned Eliphaz got one thing wrong, one thing right, and in one area he was actually, he was actually accidentally profound. In other words, he said something so insightful, so brilliant, that he, he didn't even realize it himself. In the early part of chapter 5, Eliphaz is back to his moralizing ways, and he says to Job, you know, you're suffering because of your sin. A person gets what he deserves, and you, Job, are getting what you deserve. And then he says, he pivots and says in verse 8 of chapter 5, Eliphaz says this, As for me, I would seek God, and to God would I commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable. Marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. And then in verse 13, this is his unrealized profundity. He catches the wise in their own craftiness and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. They meet with darkness in the daytime. I didn't include that one in your slides, so let me stop there. So what Eliphaz understands, I mean, although only slightly, is that God delivers the helpless in ways that make no sense to those who are wise and resourceful. God frustrates, verse 13, the crafty and the wise with a plan to bring salvation that would be labeled as foolishness to the erudite and the wise and the accomplished of the world. So long before Eliphaz had any clue about the identity of this Redeemer that God would send, God gives Eliphaz a shadowy sense of the gospel. God's salvation would, in fact, come 
in a way that would frustrate, frustrate the wise and the crafty. This is actually language that the Apostle Paul would use in 1 Corinthians 1 in talking about the glory of the gospel. Paul says this, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let, no one, or let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. So Eliphaz, he doesn't understand all of this. He doesn't know how God will bring salvation in a way that will frustrate the plans of the wise, in a way that will uh, derail the scheming of the schemers. But what he does know is that God works in a way that, that confounds our expectations. God works in a way that the wise would never imagine. Well, Paul says, this is in fact the gospel. The gospel is foolishness to the wise. Well, how would any wise, why is the gospel foolishness to the wise? Well, how would any wise or learned person expect to get right with God? With this holy God we've been talking about. Certainly by cleaning up our act, right? Certainly by get our, getting our lives in order, right? I mean, certainly by putting off sin and living righteously. Surely that's got to be the way to get right with God. But, hear me out on this, it's precisely the opposite that God requires. He requires that we put off even a hint of self-reliance, even a shred of self-dependence. God calls us to repent of even our good works. That is to say, anything we do that we might be inclined to cling to for justification of God's forgiveness. And that's what God's plan of salvation, that's what makes it so frustrating for the crafty and the wise. They want to do their part. They want to, they want to play their share. They want to contribute. They want to have something to offer to God by which He would say to them, thank you, that really helps your cause. But God says that those who try to save themselves by cleaning up their acts, by putting off their sin by contributing to their own salvation will end up lost for all eternity. That doesn't mean that all will be lost, though. As the focal point of the gospel, God sent His Son to die for those who were wicked and ungodly, those who have fallen infinitely short of His glory. Jesus died on the cross. Of course, Jesus is, is the gospel, is the center of the good news of the gospel. Jesus died on the cross, the righteous for the unrighteous, to do for us what we can never do for ourselves. He lived the holy life that God actually commanded us to live, and He died a death that we deserve. Jesus earned for us what we can never earn for ourselves, God's forgiveness and complete acceptance. The New Testament says repeatedly, the purpose of Jesus' life and work was to bring us to God, which means bring us to God as forgiven Loved, cherished, accepted, and adopted children, which is what you are today if you are in Christ. So here's what this means as it relates to Eliphaz's unexpected profundity. Here's our final point. By his obedient life and death in our place, Jesus severed the link between deserving and suffering once for all. 
You want to talk about deserving? In light of God's holiness that we've seen from this passage, we deserve death, and not just death. Eternal wrath and eternal condemnation. But Jesus took that condemnation in our place. He bore the wrath of God for us as our substitute. And the good news of the gospel is, by believing on Jesus, we get what Jesus deserved. We get what He earned by His obedience and His substitutionary death. We get forgiveness. We get all the spiritual blessings that are Christ's. We get adopted into God's family as sons and daughters. We get God's total acceptance of us even when we sin because the sinless one lived and died for us. God's forgiveness is ours for free. We don't have to earn it. We can't earn it. We can never earn it. It's ours by grace alone. Everything we don't deserve, we get. Everything we do deserve, we're spared from because of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And because of our status as beloved sons and daughters, we can also rest assured that any suffering we experience, and we'll experience, we will experience suffering, is somehow part of God's mysterious plan to bring us good, to provide for us as His children. Eliphaz was devastatingly wrong when he tried to insist that when we suffer, it's necessarily God punishing us. He was right about the holiness of God and the infinite chasm that exists between us and that holy God. But he was accidentally profound when he suggested to Job that God helps the helpless in ways that frustrate the wise and the crafty and the self-reliant. What he didn't quite know that we do know is that he was pointing us to the gospel, God's plan to save broken and sinful people, not by giving them a path by which they would climb up to him, but by condescending to them in the person and work of His Son, Jesus the Christ. Let's pray.